So I uh, got to spend a week at an orphanage in Kenya a few years back called Mazzini. And the last night I was there, I was invited to share a short devotional with all of the kids that live there. And so something like 50 orphans pack into this one living room, everything from infants to, to young adults in their 20s. And it is somehow hotter in the living room than it is outside in Kenya. It just, I walk in and it's foreheads glistening with sweat, mosquitoes buzzing around everywhere because there's no windows to close to separate the inside from the outside. And this teenage girl just suggests, why don't we start with a hymn? And she just begins to sing this song, a cappella. And it takes a couple of lines, but then everyone joins in. And by the time we got to the chorus, everyone had stood up and begun dancing and smiling and laughing and screaming out. All of the couch cushions had become drum kits and people were playing drums. And then that song ends and someone else just starts the next one and keeps going. And it just kept going like that. One song became a second and then a third and then a fourth. And I was standing there in the corner, the pastor in the room who's come to visit, thinking, I don't know anything about what they've got. What, what do you call that? I, what is the thing that I witnessed in the room that night, the thing that those orphans possessed that the visiting pastor knew nothing about? What do you call that? I think it's joy. And I think that is what the kingdom looks like when it pours out on a city like London. When the Spirit pours out uh, on, in the church, on your city and mine, it is going to look like that African orphanage. It will look like joy. And I don't want you to confuse joy with energy because they're very different things. Energy is cheap. Joy is costly. Because every single one of those kids had a heartbreaking past, a, a, a unique story of sexual abuse that they had been rescued from. And so when they walked into that room and began to sing the lyrics of that hymn, every one of them was dragging an unbelievably painful story in with them. Joy is not energy. It's not something that they gutted up from within. It was purchased for them. And it was costly. Because of the joy set before him, he endured the cross. But I am way ahead of myself already. So it's important for you to know a few things about me as we get going. First, uh, I'm a three on the Enneagram, if you speak that language. <laughs> if you don't, here's what that means. I really like to set goals and then crush them. My, my drug is success. I live on the approval of other people, but I'm also incredibly gifted at making it seem like I'm not that concerned about what you think of me, making it seem as if I've got it quite together without trying very hard. And that's the gist of it anyway. Secondly, I'm an old soul. I really like reading just for fun. Um, I wake up unbelievably early in the morning, not because I'm trying to prove something, because I truly, really enjoy it. My favorite thing on earth is to be sitting on the stoop of my Brooklyn apartment with a good cup of coffee early enough that the stars are still in the sky. I do that every day of the week, even on the weekend. 
this, this infuriates my wife, but she willingly entered into a lifelong covenant with me. So <laughs> the joke's on her. If, if I were to list off the series of events that has been most pivotal in my spiritual life up to this point, it would look like this. Call, risk, and obedience. That's sort of the uh, unconscious way that I find it easiest to relate to God, is what is the next assignment? What is the next call? What, what is the next risk you're asking me to take? I find it much easier to relate to God through call and obedience than I do through rest and delight. And the reason that you need to know all that about me is because I'm going to name a few things this weekend that might make it seem like I'm pretty excitable and generally constantly optimistic. And that, is, that just isn't the case. I want you to know who I am because I want you to know that the message I'm bringing you is one that comes from the Spirit and not out of my personality. You find it easy enough to forecast the weather. Why can't you read the signs of the times? Jesus said that. You find it easy enough to forecast the weather. Why can't you read the signs of the times? That's Matthew 16. So according to Jesus, living your spiritual life without knowing the season you're in is the same thing as walking outside without knowing if it's summer or winter, raining or, or tropical. Do you know the season? KXC, as a community, you are in a season of joy. Pete's invited me and he said, just come and speak to us prophetically. So I'm just going to name a few things. KXC, as a community, you are in a season of joy. But remember, we cannot confuse joy with enthusiasm. Joy doesn't mean that every day is sunny because it isn't cheap. It's costly. Instead, I wanted to find joy this way. Joy is a gift found on the other side of victory. So before Jesus uh, uttered a word of teaching, worked a single miracle, or called a single disciple, we're told that the Spirit drove him into the wilderness to be tempted. And then after 40 days of temptation, there's this really interesting detail included by the gospel authors right at the end. Then angels came and ministered to him. And scholars across the board will agree on this, that the angels ministering to Jesus in his final moments in the wilderness are symbolic of victory. Jesus has won a spiritual battle in the wilderness, and he, or he's fought a spiritual battle in the wilderness, and he has emerged victorious. The angels that come to attend to him are symbolic of that victory. So he walks back into, in the city carrying an internal victory within him, and the expression of that victory when it spills out of his life is joy. The outward expression of an internal victory is what we mean when we use the word joy. KXC, you are in a season of joy, and it has not come cheap. There are countless versions of individual wilderness seasons, of, of spiritual battles that have been fought in this room. Outward battles that have felt like opposition and hardship, but also inward battles that have felt like wrestling and doubt and anxiety and insecurity and lust. And today... Whether you realize it or not, as you sit here, angels are ministering to you. There's an internal victory that's alive in this church right now, and the outward expression of that internal victory is what I mean when I say joy. So I am here to talk to you about how to live in a season of joy, 
How do you conduct yourself if that's true? If that's the chapter that God is writing in the life of this community, then how are you to live? How do you live in a season of joy? Here's a preview of where we're going today. I want to borrow a few words from the author Christopher West. And when these moments come, they can't really be manufactured, although we can dispose ourselves to them. But when these moments come, we should drink them in and listen. If we listen, we can almost hear a voice whispering to our hearts, it is good to be here. Rest here for a while. Savor it, for this is a taste, a taste of what is to come. Let it lift you up. Let it fire you up. Let it give you hope. How do you live in a season of joy? Well, here's where it starts. Eat the bread. That will make more sense at the end. Eat the bread. So if you've got a Bible or an app, I would love if you would open it to Mark chapter 2, verse 23. And get very used to that spot. Go ahead and mark it. That is our home for this weekend. We're going to come back to it again and again and again. Mark chapter 2, beginning in verse 23. I'll meet you there in just a moment. Before I get there, I want to tell you about two meals in London. So I had the great privilege of getting to visit your city twice in the year 2019. Uh, the second time I came, the more recent one, uh, I was coming over to preach in late October with your community, and the plan was for me to crash on someone's couch until just before I left, just a couple of weeks out, someone from my congregation contacted me and said, hey, I work at a hotel called The Standard, and I heard you're traveling to London. We just opened a location for a hotel in this neighborhood called King's Cross. I have no idea if that's convenient for you at all. But if it is, I'd love to comp you a room there. And I was like, it's convenient for me. <laughs> so um, I arrived to London on a Saturday night. I was preaching the following morning. I go to the check-in desk as I'm checking in. They said, oh, Mr. Staten, we see you're a corporate client, which was news to me. <laughs> Um, so, of course, all of your food and beverage will be comped throughout your stay. And I was like, anything? Anything. Do you have a reservation in your finest restaurant for right now? And, in fact, they did. And so I get, walked into this restaurant. I was being seated. And the whole thing is quite a scene. There's a DJ playing a set. I'm sat at a table by myself in between two dates that I'm trying to pay attention to both simultaneously. <laughs> I ordered the most expensive entree on the menu. I didn't even look at the items. I just looked at the prices, and I took that one. I added an appetizer and a glass of wine. They brought all of it out on one tray and set this feast in front of me. And right when they did, I just had this flashback moment. And it was back to the previous time that I had been in your city, which was almost exactly a year before. It was at the very beginning of the year. And there's one British tradition that I have always wanted in on, and it's the Sunday roast. <laughs> I just love that you guys are getting outrageously full right in the middle of the day <laughs> to close out the week. And so... I leaked this information to my good friends Gavin Jen, who are a part of this community, and they booked a reservation at this, at this incredible pub that did a Sunday roast, and we go there together, and I sit down at the table, but at that point, I was in the midst of the, a season of fasting, 
where I felt as if God had, had asked me to commit to several different forms of fasting for an extended period of time. And part of that was that all day, every day on Sunday, I would fast. I would go without eating. I didn't tell Gavin Jen that before they booked the reservation. So I sat there at the Sunday roast having only water, and it did not slow them down at all. <laughs> and I, I'm making light of it, but I... I really mean this. I, I felt completely content. I felt as if I was living in obedience to the season that God had called me to at that moment, that, that he was offering me a different kind of feast in, in the midst of that period of my life, and, and I was to be about fasting. And so back to the Standard Hotel. I'm sitting there with this massive meal placed in front of me that I could never afford. Feasting. And my imagination is running back to the last time I sat down at a, at a restaurant, at a table in London, fasting. And I just heard the whisper of God say to me, I brought you here at the start of the year to fast. I'm bringing you here at the end of the year to feast. And both are holy. I've prepared both tables. And then I just began to weep on my own in between those two dates. <laughs> And they began observing me at that point. Now, those, those two meals have everything to do with Mark chapter 2, verse 23. Let me show you why. One Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields, and as his disciples walked along, they began to pick some heads of grain. Now, in the very next sentence that comes right after this, these snacking disciples are going to come under some criticism. So the first thing you've got to know is that they were trying their very best to follow the rules. Deuteronomy 23 says, if you enter your neighbor's grain field, you may pick kernels with your hands, but you must not put a sickle to their standing grain. So they're trying to follow the rules. They are picking kernels with their hands. This is what they're allowed to do. Are they putting a sickle to the standing grain? Never. Can you imagine just going from house to house, putting a sickle to your neighbor's standing grain? Exactly. So they're picking kernels with their hands. The Pharisees said to him, look, why are they doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? Now, the key phrase here is on the Sabbath, because the disciples are playing by the rules except for this key detail that it is the Sabbath. And the, the Torah clearly states that it is a breach of the, of the law to reap a harvest of any kind on the Sabbath. It doesn't matter if it's high harvest. You cannot reap any fruit from a field on the Sabbath day. And this isn't nitpicking. They're not finding like the finer points of the law here. This is a clear violation of maybe the central part of the covenant between Yahweh and the Hebrew people. That one day out of every seven would be consecrated, it would be set aside as holy, a time for rest. That was the distinguishing mark of the Hebrew people that set them apart from every other people group on the face of the earth. Resting was this prophetic act, this way to say, I am not actually steering the ship. Redemption is not up to me, it is up to God. And so as an act of worship, I will refrain from participating in that redemption in any way except to rest and remember that he is on the throne. So look, the Pharisees, they're not nitpicking here. In fact, the book of Jubilees, which is revered by all Jewish rabbis, um, says that the Sabbath is the theological foundation that the remainder of the law is built on. 
The Damascus document, which at this time was the sacred literature of the Essenes, which was one sect of these priests, took such a high view of the Sabbath that it said that on the Sabbath day, you cannot rescue one of your own livestock if it falls into a well. And if a woman goes into labor, you cannot assist her. Can you imagine that? Like, babe, if this goes down on day seven, you're on your own. (laughs) Imagine that. All that to say, this is a major violation. And some communities still live by this today. In Brooklyn, where I live, uh, it's home to the highest Hasidic Jewish population in any place on the globe outside of Jerusalem. And so even if you enter the hospital on the Sabbath day in New York City, there's one elevator called the Sabbath elevator that just runs automatically and stops on every floor. So that if you're a Hasidic Jew and you have to go to the hospital on the Sabbath, you don't have to do the work of pressing the button on the elevator, but can just board the Sabbath elevator and get off where you want. This is a major violation. Look, why are they doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? When the Pharisees phrase that question that way, They're bringing a criminal charge against the rabbi Jesus and his disciples. They're using what is called a halakha argument, and it's a legal argument. So I want to nerd out on this for just a moment because it's going to be incredibly important for understanding Jesus' response. The rabbis divided the Bible into two parts, the halakha and the haggadah. So the halakha meaning law and the haggadah meaning story. And they viewed these as very different parts of the biblical narrative. So they use a halakha argument, meaning a law argument. They reference Exodus chapter 34 in their accusation. And when an authority figure like a priest uses a halakha argument, the accused is then obligated to respond by a halakha argument. In other words, in order to defend yourself against the criminal charge that's just been made against you, you have to reference two other law scriptures that follow the exact Hebrew language pattern. Those are the rules. So when the priests say, why are your disciples doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? They're really saying all of that. They're bringing all of that to the table. They're making a legal accusation and expecting Jesus, a rabbi who knows the rules, to respond with a legal defense. He answered... Have you never read what David did when he and his companions were hungry and in need? In the days of Abiathar the high priest, he entered the house of God and ate the consecrated bread, which is lawful only for the priest to eat, and he also gave some to his companions. Jesus responds to a halakha argument with a Haggadah response. He responds to the law with a story, and that doesn't work legally. Now, Jesus is a master rabbi. There are many other occasions in the scripture where he plays by the Pharisees' rules and wins the argument. He does so quite well. So ignorance is not the thing that's driving his response. Jesus doesn't play their game. He tells them a story. And he does that as an invitation. Because law draws boundaries, right? It says these are the lines that you can't go outside of. But story invites participation. This is why Jesus primarily teaches through story, because he is primarily a participatory teacher. Jesus is taking these priests who are trying to draw lines around the behavior of Jesus' disciples, and he's telling them a story to say, if you could only see what I see, you could come and participate in the feast that we are having. But what feast, right? I mean, that's sort of a dramatic word for like taking a few heads off the top of a wheat stalk. 
Wait, it's a feast if we see what Jesus sees, if we enter in and participate in the story that Jesus is telling here. 1 Samuel chapter 21, that is where you will find the story Jesus is referencing. Let's go there. Have you never read what David did when he and his companions were hungry and in need? David is Israel's greatest king. He's royalty of royalty. He is the beginning of the messianic line, the head of God's own ancestry. So let's use him as a model for what you're observing when you see my disciples snacking on the Sabbath. Jumping to 1 Samuel 21, what you need to know is that David's on the run. He's a few years out from being anointed king of Israel, and the current corrupt king is feeling threatened, so he's placed a bounty on his head. So David gets to a town just north of Jerusalem. He finds the temple there. He enters into that temple. He goes to the high priest and says this, Now then, what do you have on hand? Give me five loaves of bread or whatever you can find. But the priest answered David, I don't have any ordinary bread on hand. However, there is some consecrated bread here. So the priest gave him the consecrated bread, since there was no bread there except the bread of the presence that had been removed from before the Lord and replaced by hot bread on the day it was taken away. Now the scandalous part of that story is this, that David, a common man, ate the consecrated bread. He ate the bread that was kept in the Holy of Holies, a room that only the high priest could enter and where the presence of God was believed to dwell. And this bread was to be eaten only by the priest and only in that room. This is the only instance before the resurrection of Jesus that you will ever find a common person entering the Holy of Holies, much less eating the bread that was kept there. See, this isn't ordinary bread. It's the physical representation of God's covenant to Israel. It is holy and set apart for the priest. And then the priest gives it to David to eat like it's common toast just because he's hungry. And this is like you entering a church on Easter Sunday and then slathering jam all over the communion bread and then eating the whole loaf. But that doesn't even quite do it justice because we don't have a modern equivalent for the reverence that was given toward this room and this bread. We don't have a modern equivalent for this kind of irreverence shown by David or for this kind of freedom, depending on who's telling the story. In the days of Abiathar the high priest, he entered the house of God and ate the consecrated bread, which is lawful for only the priests to eat. Jesus is saying, David discerned the season for breaking the rules, for pulling up a chair at the holiest table like it was his own kitchen. Jesus is saying, you are living in a season for breaking the rules, for feasting right in the place where you once fasted. Jesus is saying, there's a time for fasting and there's a time for feasting. Do you know the season you're in? Is this a season for fasting at a Sunday roast? Or is it a season for ordering the most expensive item on the menu? For a meal that you could never afford? Do you know the season you're in? Let's zoom out just a little bit more to get some more context. In the verses immediately preceding this story, right before where we started reading in verse 23, Jesus gets asked a different question. Why aren't your disciples fasting like our disciples fast? And this was his response. Jesus answered, how can the guests of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? 
They cannot so long as they have him with them. But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them. And on that day, they will fast. So there's a time for fasting and there's a time for feasting. Do you know the season you're in? See, Jesus has emerged from the wilderness and he's carrying this internal victory. And when that victory gets expressed into the world, it looks like a wedding reception. And you don't fast while you're toasting with the groom at his own wedding reception. This is a season of joy. That's what you're observing. Don't you see it? Don't you want to participate? So the question is, how do you live in a season of joy? And the answer, according to Jesus, starts here. You eat the bread. You eat the consecrated bread. That's the technical jargon anyway. Maybe a more honest way of saying it is you throw open the curtain of the Holy of Holies and you pull up a chair at the holiest table like it's your grandmother's kitchen. You pour a tall glass of wine for every guest and you feast. That's how you honor God in the midst of joy. The victory of Jesus broke all of the rules. So now you can eat the consecrated bread. Let me try to bring this a little closer and make it a bit more personal. The question you should be asking is, what is the consecrated bread God is inviting me to feast on? If I'm in the midst of a season of joy, if this is the chapter God's writing in this community, what is the holy of holies kind of bread I'm being offered by God? So I just want to take you to a few different places in the scripture, and all of them will not be for you individually, but I imagine that you will find yourself somewhere in here. First, Isaiah chapter 55. Come, all who are thirsty, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why spend money on what is not bread and your labor on what does not satisfy? Listen, listen to me and eat what is good. And you will delight in the richest affair. See, often you'll hear this biblical invitation that Jesus gives, right, to come and drink, to quench your soul's thirst. And that's where this seems to be going. Come, all who are thirsty, come to the waters. But then there's an unexpected destination at the end. Come and have wine and milk. Not mixed together. That would be gross. See, water is sustenance. It is for our survival. Wine and milk are indulgence. We can live without them. We don't survive on them. They're delicacies. Come and drink and discover that I've given you more than just what you need to be sustained. I'm filling your glass with indulgence, not just with survival. And so there will be some in the room that are being asked by God, why spend your money on what is not bread? Why labor after that which does not satisfy? Listen to me. And eat what is good. I'm setting the richest affair before you at the table. That's some of you. Others might find themselves in Psalm 127. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil. For he gives to his beloved sleep. Some among you are trying to eat the bread of anxious toil. Busy stocking your own fridge, setting your own table, preparing your own feast, and filled with anxiety along the way. 
you wake up every morning with the buzz of that day's task just waking you from your sleep. You lay down each night with a scrolling list still spinning in your head. Gnawing on the bread of anxious toil is about the way you go about ordinary life. Work, where the weekly task of this professional life that you are living feels quite heavy. Something's invaded your imagination and it has set up camp and made a home there. Parenting. The worry over your kids, over their schooling, their social lives, their development, it is incessantly swarming you. Maybe your relationships, this friendship, this flatmate, this person I'm dating, this marriage, I'm trying to control it, and it is killing me. Listen to God's invitation. In vain you rise up early and stay up late. If you trust me to build what you are trying to build, here's what I want to give you. Sleep. Rest. See, sometimes a feast feels like eight hours of sleep and deep, deep dreaming. And that's a gift God offers to those who place their trust in him and are covered in his peace instead of trying to feast on the table they can set for themselves, which he calls anxious toil. That's the Spirit's invitation to some. For others, you'll find yourself in Psalm 78. He rained down manna for the people to eat. He gave them the grain of heaven. Human beings ate the bread of angels. He sent them all the food they could eat. This is how God provided for Israel in the midst of the desert journey. The bread of angels is not a feast they had once they got to the promised land. It's what they ate along the way to sustain them for the journey ahead. And some of you will find yourselves today in the midst of a desert journey. And it's a God-ordained desert journey. You're not stuck. You're following him in a long, hard season of obedience that does lead to flourishing. But in the middle, it's a long, taxing slog through the wilderness that you don't have a map for. And to you, I believe that the Spirit wants to speak to you what the angel once spoke to Elijah at the midway point of his own pilgrimage. Take and eat. The journey ahead is too much for you. And then finally, Psalm 103. Who satisfies your desires with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagles? See, there will be a few others here who have been trying to satisfy their own desires. Trying to indulge yourself, to treat yourself, to rest yourself, to fulfill yourself, to feed yourself. And you know it's not working. It's not renewing your youth, it's wearing you out. And God says, I know how to satisfy the deepest parts of you, even deeper than you know. Eat from my table. I've saved a seat for you. I know how to fill you. Come to my feast. I wonder if you find yourself somewhere on the pages of Scripture this morning. Let me bring this as close as I can. I just want to speak to two specific groups in this room, those for whom this is confirming and those for whom this is completely missing. So first, for those whom this is confirming, that's probably because you have been in the desert and are walking out victorious. And you may be weary or tired or run down. You may even be injured and you're coming out with a limp, but it is a victorious limp and you know that it is time for a new season. And what's happening right now is you're getting language for an experience that you've had. And that is, number one, just confirmation that you're not crazy. 
You're right in the middle of God's will and purpose. You are being led by the Spirit, the same Spirit that drove Jesus into the wilderness, drove you there, and the Spirit that blew like wind at his back as he walked back into the city is now blowing at yours. So this is confirmation, but it's also invitation. Because language for your experience is always an invitation deeper. Language is so freeing because it's something that I had as a gut feeling now becomes something that I can articulate and talk about. It opens up a new dialogue between me and God. It's an invitation to step deeper into the thing he was inviting me into all along. So this is both confirmation of where you've been and an invitation to live more deeply into the story. Receive it. And enjoy it. These are the words of Jesus in Luke 12. Be dressed ready for service and keep your lamps burning like servants waiting for their master to return from a wedding banquet so that when he comes and knocks, they can immediately open the door for him. It will be good for those servants whose master finds them watching when he comes. Truly, I tell you, he will dress himself to serve. will have them recline at the table and will come and wait on them. You are not the master. You are just the servant. But the master is putting on your apron, seating you at his table and serving you. And you're thinking, how can it be this good? Am I crazy? Or could it be this good? It is this good. Jesus really did promise that this would be part of the journey of walking with him. Receive it and enjoy it. But if I'm completely missing you, and this makes no sense at all, that's probably because you feel anything but victorious. And sure, you might be walking with a limp, but it's not the limp of victory. It's the limp of your own struggle, your own shortcoming, your own failure. And yeah, maybe I've been in the desert, but I haven't been there winning cosmic spiritual battles. I've been getting picked over by the vultures. Some have reluctantly come on this weekend thinking this is an opportunity to get right with God, to sort things out again and get back on the right track. And so what does God want to speak over you today? Victorious. I've seen it all. I saw it before you lived it. And here's what I call it. Victorious. Something like a week after his crucifixion when the body was missing and there were rumors but no one knew for sure yet, Peter wasn't sleeping very well. And so he went fishing at midnight with a few of his friends. And after hours of fishing and no catch at all, some guy screams out from the shore about sunrise, try throwing your nets to the other side. Now, Peter's way too experienced of a fisherman to take that kind of advice, but he's also way too broken of a man to resist at this point. And so he picks up the nets and he throws them on the other side. And then when he pulls them in, there is such a heavy catch being raked in that his nets begin to tear. It's the exact repeat of the miracle Jesus worked when he first called Peter to be his disciple. And suddenly it hits him, that's the Lord on the shore. And so you would think he rows the boat in, but he doesn't. He takes his shirt off and dives into the water. And sometimes we think, like, it's romantic. Like, Peter was so excited to see Jesus, he just couldn't wait. It wasn't romantic. It was, I've got to sort some things out before everyone else gets around the conversation. 
Because the last time Jesus and Peter had locked eyes, it was across a courtyard while a rooster was crowing after Peter's third denial. The last time they were this close to one another, Peter was denying that he even knew him, abandoning him in his moment of need and leaving him for dead. He's swimming in because he's thinking, I've got some stuff to get right. If God does happen to show up, and he has, I've got to get in on the conversation and sort things out and get back on the right track before everyone else comes around. And that's you. Reluctantly on the church weekend, knowing there's a few things that you've got to smooth over in some private moment with God if he happens to show up. And then Peter swims up and Jesus is warming his hands over top of a charcoal fire. A charcoal fire. That's exactly what Peter was doing, warming his hands over a charcoal fire when he denied Jesus. Jesus then asked him the same question three times. Three questions for three denials. Peter, do you love me? And every time Peter responds, yes, Lord, you know that I love you, Jesus then says to him, feed my sheep. See, before the denial, Jesus called Peter the rock he's building his church on. The last thing Peter says, Jesus said to Peter was this, I have prayed for you that you might not fall away. In other words, Peter, you're the only one surprised by your weakness. And so I've prayed for you that when you confront the weakness that's always been within you, that it won't cripple you so much that you can't come back to me. I've prayed that the denial wouldn't ruin you. That when you see yourself, you can still look me in the eye again. And so Peter swims in thinking, I've got some explaining to do. And then when he comes up on shore, he finds Jesus saying, victorious, victorious, victorious. I prayed for you, Peter, that you would not fall away. And you haven't. You're still here. And you're still here. Jesus calls that a living victory. A close friend of mine who's five years sober invited me to go to an AA meeting with him in the basement of this church in lower Manhattan. And I'll never forget walking into this 12-step meeting and sitting down on the back row in a metal folding chair. And they opened the meeting with people who were counting the first 30 days uh, identifying themselves. And so it goes something like this. Someone calls the meeting to order. Everyone sits down. Then someone stands up and says, Steve, 11 days. And then there's this... This little polite clap. James, 23 days. Glenn, 17 days. The short applause after each one. And then this kid sitting near me in his early 20s stands up and he's visibly nervous, kind of shaky, and he says his name and then says, One day. And the room just got quiet for a moment. Like this holy kind of reverence. And that silence was broken by the screak of one of those metal chairs against the old tile floor. And it was this old man across the room that I would later find out had over 30 years sober. And he stands up in that holy moment and just starts climbing over top of the rows of chairs that are in front of him. Just not going to the side, just swimming through everyone. And he comes up to this kid and just wraps his arms around him in the middle of this row and holds him for an awkwardly long amount of time. 
And the room just erupts in applause as he holds this young kid because it's one thing to hear that a guy is fighting his demons and trying to get sober. That's a good story. It's quite another thing to know exactly what it feels like to go out for a couple of beers and then wake up on the sidewalk, to vomit on your own desk at work, to urinate on your own living room floor, to ruin your marriage and disappoint your kids and trade in everything that you love the most for something so small. He knew exactly what it was like to live that story because that was his story. How bad does it have to get to be in your early 20s and walk into a room of complete strangers and say, I need help, and it's day one. There was a man in the room that knew exactly how bad because he had lived it. And that's what happened between Jesus and Peter on this beach. God, God was swimming across rows of chairs, stepping over every obstacle that was in front of him to grab him and to hold him. And when Jesus sees that, he says, you know what I call that? Victory. Hebrews chapter 10. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place, that is the room where the consecrated bread sits, by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, open for us through the curtain that is his body, meaning by his victory, not because of yours. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful." Before that day on the beach, Peter believed that God was merciful. After that day on the beach, Peter knew that God was merciful. An impersonal theory went to a very personal experience. So to those of you whom I'm missing, who are here to get right, to start a new chapter, to explain yourself and apologize, you are being met by the one who saw it all before you did, and his message to you is this, victorious, victorious, victorious. It took courage to drag yourself into God's presence to try to make it right. It takes even more courage to believe that Jesus calls that act living victory. There's a sociological study done recently to determine the phrases that bring the average human being the most joy. And I want to give you the top three. I love you, I forgive you, and dinner's ready. <laughs> That's real information. That's a three-part summary of what God is speaking over this community right now. I love you, I forgive you, dinner's ready. KXC, know the season. Know the season you're in. It's feasting time. This is a season of joy.